Welcome to episode 84B. Today, Dr. Debbie Zakarian joins us to talk about culturally responsive teaching. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Our work is inherently culturally responsive. It's not just because we work with culturally diverse students. Our practice is culturally responsive because we see our students and their families in an assets-based perspective. From this belief, it's the first step to being culturally responsive. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so excited to have another one of my heroes back to the podcast, Dr. Debbie Zakarian has already been in the podcast once, uh, and she comes back to the podcast this time to talk about her newest book with Dr. Ivanya Soto, Responsive Schooling for Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Students. So welcome back, Dr. Zakarian. Thank you. It's great to be here. Would you know that when I first, the first book that I read for uh, English learners was your book with Judy Hayes. So I actually knew you about 12 years ago. Oh my gosh, what fun. And that book was such a great book to write with Judy. What a wonderful writer. And uh, we had such fun writing that book. And so now I feel like, yeah, I get to interview my heroes. Oh, well, thank you. And uh, it's always great to, you know, to meet people who've read your work and then to read your work as well. So I see you all the time on Twitter and I read what you post. And it's always so fascinating seeing how our field just keeps on growing and growing. And we learn from one another. It's just wonderful. I think there's a quote. It goes like this the smartest person in the room is the room and i feel like the field our field is the room and every time someone writes something we learn and we're like oh wait that's that's really interesting let me build on that and so i have just been building on your work judy's work dr echeverria's work everyone's work before us and so i stand on very big shoulders yeah and we keep on standing on each other's shoulders right so it's like you build and you build and you keep building it's just uh i think that's what keeps us all going and your energy keeps us going. I still remember you were the first podcast of 2021. And I was like, what a great way to start the year. You were so uh, zen and so gentle and like you were so clear. And people on Twitter have said really positive things about uh, your work. Well, I think it's because of you being the interviewer. <laughs> oh, I just shine the light and make and make really great people look pretty. Uh, well, it's fun. And it's been really fun listening to your uh, podcast. Oh, thank you for listening. I'm honored. So speaking of work, um, what was the seed of this book? So in our book, um, we start with 
sort of these two authors that I had read about and how much they influenced my thinking around responsive teaching um, and it's, it's sort of how their identity was shaped by these interactions that they'd had with their uh, teachers. And they came from, one uh, is Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, who's a sociologist at Harvard, um, African-American, is super well-known. And I'd been teaching a course at uh, the University of Massachusetts for years called Managing Culturally Responsive Classrooms. And when I heard that Lawrence Lightfoot was going to be speaking, I thought, I have to go. So I... I knew I wanted to hear her speak. I knew she had written a new book that was called The Essential Conversation. And it was a book about uh, having a conversation with families. And what I didn't know was her story. And her story um, was that when she was young and in second grade, uh, she was sick. And I don't remember what she became sick with, but she was out of school for a while. Mm. And uh, her maternal grandmother, talk about well-educated families, her maternal grandmother was a teacher. So she was home as a second grader. Grandmother was teaching her. Her father was a professor and her mother was a teacher. So here she's home. And she said the strictest, most rigorous teacher ever in her life was the grandmother. So she was home recovering while her grandmother was making sure she was you know, being taught. So she goes back to school after a few months. And the first week she went back to school, she told the audience that um, she could go back for half a day and then she had to go home and continue recovering. And she remembered, and this you know, made such an impression on me. She was standing outside in the parking lot with her teacher. Her teacher put her hands on Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot's shoulders and she, her parents drove up. And she said to her parents um, something like, um, something like, your child needs to repeat second grade. She's missed so much school. She needs to repeat second grade. And if that wasn't bad enough, she also said, and your child is not college material. (gasps) Who would say that to a second grader? Second grade. So what struck Lawrence Lightfoot was, not just what this teacher said with her hands on her shoulders, this supposedly caring teacher says these words, right? But she also vividly remembers her parents' silence, Yes, that they didn't respond. Mm. And that memory made such an impact on her. And her telling of that story really made an impact on me. So when I read the book and I reread the story and I thought about, you know, these powerful interactions that we experience as when we're little, how much of an impact they make, right? Right. And to hear her as a, I think she was a grandmother at that time, because when, during the talk, she talked about, you know, her family and stuff. And here it was years, generations later, and that story still held such currency for her. So that, you know, was part of my thinking around, well, you know, what kinds of things should we be doing that, you know, and then I read this other book that, really made an impact on me too. And it's a book that was edited by uh, three people, Pano Rodas and Marilyn Buscardine, and I'm I'm blanking on the third uh, author. And it's called Life Stories, uh, Learning Learning Disabilities with Adults, or it's um, Learning Disabilities and Life Stories. So it's these essays by people that had been diagnosed with learning disabilities about their experience going through school. 
And I just found the book so powerful because it's written by adults who are reflecting on their childhoods, having been through school, having been identified and having an IEP. And, uh, you know, I, re I read this essay by Lynn Pelkey. You know, I, it's not that I know her. It's that I read this essay and I just found it really powerful because she was writing it when she was 35 years old, looking back at when she was a kid. And um, she wrote about how when she was young, she had been diagnosed with a learning disability. So she self-named herself as someone with an LD. And she called it living in this LD bubble. Right. You know, wherever she went, she was just identified. And she, what she heard her teacher say about her was that she was lazy, that um, she didn't do as well as her peers. She wasn't as smart as her peers. All these negative, you know, deficit-based assumptions and perceptions about her and how much that really plagued her and how she didn't feel that she was a student until her mother encouraged her just to try a, call, a course at a community college when she was in her 30s. So those um, experiences really planted the seed of you know, what does it mean to be a responsive educator? You know, uh, and we use those two stories in the book um, just because they were so powerful and made such an influence on me. Right. I, I think just as I'm listening to your beautiful retelling of it, very NPR style of you. Um, <laughs> what that means, but okay. <laughs> it's highly polished and I you took us into the stories. And I was like, yes. And I think those two stories tell us that narratives are really important and it's the narratives that we tell our kids and their families and a lot of our fa the kids families come from cultures where they really respect education whatever the teachers have said that's their word and so they live up to that and so if imagining if someone said your child is not as a second grader not college ready now the family yeah. lives up to that yeah, I mean, luckily for her, uh, she, she obviously did not live up to that. And right. she became a really renowned, and I think endowed uh, professor at uh, Harvard, which is pretty exceptional. And, you know, and we're all the beneficiaries of her amazing uh, scholarship. But not everybody has parents like hers who are so, um, you know, even though their silence made a huge impact on her, obviously, there's you know, their um, experience, you know, their education, their experience made a big impression on her. Look where she ended. But not every student really comes from that type of experience. And honestly, you know, you and I've worked with many of them. And so we really have to think carefully about, yeah, what we say and what we do. Right. And that's the reason why you've written this book, right? to help us yeah, think of, to think about a different narrative. So in chapter one, you talked about what is, uh, you talked about culturally responsive teaching. So would you be able to tell us what that is and then why it's so urgent? Oh yeah, definitely. So, you know, undergirding the whole book is, you know, what is literacy and why is it so darn important? And what was really wonderful about Ivania is she had written about academic language and um, I, I knew her because of a book she had written on, uh, called E.L. Shadowing, and it's a second edition. Now it's, you know, she's really quite a powerhouse. And she'd also written or edited a four book series on academic language with a lot of people that you and I know 
um, who've contributed to the, you know, the concept. And I'd written a book on mastering academic language and how do you really support someone to get there? And I have this idea in my head that it's like, a, you know, what does it take for someone to really acquire these literacy skills that then become a literacy suitcase that they carry with, the, or we all carry with us, you know, wherever we go. And, you know, packed in that is this sense of having a rich vocabulary and a, a way of thinking about learning and, um, you know, we have this depth of knowledge and how we can express it and think about learning. But when it comes to school, um, you know, and kind of thinking about, well, what is, um, you know, what what is culturally responsive uh, learning and why is, why is it so urgent? That really involves a lot of thinking through um, in terms of, you know, how do we move from where we are to where we want to be? What kinds of things should we take into account? And there are three elements that we really talk about in the book that we think are, are so critical to think about. And one of them is, um, you know, there's two scholars who are really well known. Ivani and I um, graciously call them the grandmothers of responsive schooling. <laughs> and they're uh, uh, Gloria Latson Billings and Geneva Gay. And, you know, they, they define the concept of, of culturally responsive or culturally sustaining practices as, um, you know, having these uh, points of reference so that um, a teacher really helps students acquire this knowledge, these experiences and these frames of reference by building from their students' personal, cultural, social um, and academic experiences. And we try and make these learning encounters really meaningful by building from that. And it isn't a matter of taking away anything like a high expectation. It's actually keeping high expectations, but building from these references. So the way that we look at it behind culturally responsive teaching is like, how can we move away from being the all-knowing authority right. um, to having a shared sense of learning in, in our classrooms and how we can help everyone collaborate together and really learn from one another and feel empowered in doing so. And then how do we really draw from our students' strengths and our own? Um, and I, I think I spoke with you about using a strength-based approach and we use that in this book as well, like why that's so important to really work from our students, our own and, our, and their families and our colleagues and our schools and our communities assets. And, and so we talk about like, what, you know, what's the urgency for doing this? And we present that from, you know, various perspectives, both who our students are, and we present, you know, some really compelling, urgent reasons for thinking more carefully about who our students are, and then who we are. And then we look historically at what are some of the Supreme Court cases and activities that have really been targeted to um, overcoming inequities. So those were the three, you know, who the students are is really important and what the changes that we've experienced uh, have been and what they continue to be. And just the, you know, the diverse um, experiences of multilingual learners is just so distinct from most teachers um, and most live in poverty most don't have strong literacy experiences, or if they do, they're very distinct from ours. Um, many, many have experienced adversity, significant adversity. And then there are students who are undocumented and fear deportation, 
uh, other students who have experienced extreme natural disasters in their home countries or here in the U.S. And then, of course, everybody's gone through the pandemic, right? <laughs> so, you know, there's that. And then most of us haven't been trained to be culturally responsive or been taught by uh, professors who've been, you know, have depth of training in that field. So we might take a course or we might have some exposure. So part of the seed of this was really trying to come up with a scholarly book that was K-16, not K-12, but K through college for this purpose of, well, what would it mean to be culturally responsive? And what, how could we really enact those, defi those definitions that I gave you? Right. Um, in, in the work that we do. Right. I drew a little image of an iceberg because really when, when people think about culturally responsive, they think about flags and festivals, but really it's deeper than that. And the three things that you identified, which is starting from students' background, collaboration, and then student uh, strength-based approach, that really helps us focus going beyond the flags and festival to really focusing on highly rich uh, challenging experiences, academic rich experiences for students because they can achieve just like the, just like uh, when you talked about Lightfoot, right? we're saying, oh, hey, yes, you can go to college and you're not stuck here. Would you talk about um, some of the Supreme Court cases or just one of them that you remember that you're like, oh, yes, this is really telling of the urgency? Oh my gosh. Well, it's hard to talk about one without talking about like the bulk of them, but probably the one that's the most cited is Castaneda versus Picard. And that's a really good one because that took place in Texas, big state. Um, and in that case, if students were identified as bilingual learners, they sort of languished in the bilingual programs, never to be uh, taken out or progress through them and so forth. And that case has such currency because not only is it cited, but the outcome of that case is what we all know as, uh, you know, that three-prong programming that has to be, first, we have to provide programming that's based on research, proven to be sound and effective, and that we can show, you know, evidence of that. So those, uh, you know, that's probably the most well-known, uh, most cited case. But the one that's the most known is Love versus Nichols, which was the first one in the 70s. But what preceded that, and sort of if we look at it historically is like even in the late 1800s, Plessy versus Ferguson was this separate but equal, right? That, you know, we would all get the same education, even though you were put over there and I was put over here, right? <clears throat> and then in 54, the Brown versus Board of Education, which was, okay, we're not a separate but equal has never been equal. E equal. Just so separate, we need separate. to integrate integrate with all deliberate speed, which you know you would think would happen too, but maybe with some good intent and good you know good intentions and so forth, and that didn't happen. And so the Johnson became president, and it was uh, you know just before the civil rights movement. And during his era, I mean, so many Supreme Court cases and so many initiatives occurred from the. Lao versus Nichols case where uh, the Chinese community in San Francisco brought their school system to court saying, um, we, we don't speak English and we need some remedies for helping us. And of, of course they won, which is great, uh, but it took all the way to the Supreme Court for them to win because they kept on losing in the uh, lower courts. So it took the Supreme Court to really say, yes, 
we need to provide remedies, right? So, you know, then it was the, you know, the uh, Johnson's Elementary and Secondary Education Act, the later the No Child Left Behind Act, all these initiatives and actions um, under Obama race to the top, under Clinton many years before the charter school movement, all of these initiatives and acts and regulations were all targeted to really overcome a lot of the inequities that we've experienced. And so these court cases, one might say, well, there's laws that protect the rights of all these students. So of course they're gonna get a high quality education. But if we really look at outcomes and we look at graduation rates, Uh, we see that, you know, one of the groups who's really struggling the most are multilingual learners. They tend to be either the ones who are not graduating at, they're either at the graduating at the least, you know, at the, if, if we look at a bar graph, English learners are always over to the lowest bar. Uh, so they're not as successful as other students in graduating. And then we look at the other way that uh, those graphs are uh, aggreg- uh, disaggregated. They fall into other groups as well. So if it's, you know, groups from underrepresented populations, either socioeconomically, racially, and so forth, they rep- also represent those groups. So across the board, it really merits emergency around, well, what does it take to really support our multilingual growing and rapidly changing multilingual learners to be successful in school and in their lives too, you know, what helps our students flourish. So thank you for telling us all those course, uh, the Supreme Court cases, because really, I guess the pattern is saying there are laws and we have to uphold them. And when they aren't, we're going to fight. And so I think uh, that is our call to say we have to know the laws and we have to push against when those rights are not given. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, every one of our, you know, there's the federal law, which would be, you know, governing everything. And then there's the state laws, let's say district policies. Uh, so there'd be, you know, the federal laws, the state laws, and then a district would have how it carries those out and their policies. And then a school would have policies. And then an, a teacher would have sort of a way of enacting those. So, you know, when you take these big circles and you start going down to how is a teacher interacting with students, it should be based on all of these overarching, um, you know, guidelines and regulations. So that should be a really big part of our sort of whole understanding of what this means. Right, right. It's it's like a trickle-down effect. It's like the decisions that are made at the top are very much felt at the very, very grassroots level in the classroom. So can we talk about um, how is identity uh, socially and uh, interactionally constructed? That's like, uh, you know, that's a question that we explore in one of the chapters. And I spoke a bit about uh, Lawrence Lightfoot and Pelkey and what they experienced as young kids and the interactions that they observed others having about them. And we don't often think about, you know, how our identities are really constructed. And it's really helpful to think about that. And what we write about is, you know, think of how Lawrence Lightfoot and Pelkey's perceptions of themselves were impacted by what they heard others say about them and what they felt about that and their perceptions of that and these uh, powerful moments in their lives where they heard others speak to their 
who they who they thought they were. And so we, um, you know, when you think of Lawrence Lightfoot and you think about how wrong her teachers' words were, uh, part of that is, you know, whether we think of it or not, as educators, we have a lot of power over, um, you know, how students per- perceive themselves exactly. as learners and as people and as contributors. Um, and so in the book, we look at two really uh, seminal scholars in the field of developmental psychology and um, co- you know, cognitive development, and that's Barbara Rogoff and Mary Govain. And what's fascinating about their work is, is really looking at how we're guided as humans to participate in the world based on what we observe and how we're kind of coached or guided to interact with those around us and how that kind of informs who we are as people and our identities. And, you know, if we look at examples of how identity is really this, um, formed by all of these interactions, we can see who we are as people and how that is um, kind of uh, encouraged and influenced by the interactions we have in the world around us. And in the book, we show three examples of what we mean, um, you know, by showing, you know, little four-year-olds and what their experience is at, at bedtime and sort of the rituals that their parents have to show how, you know, identity is really informed by um, these rituals that we experience over and over and over again um, at home, in school and beyond. And the, the rituals of the, of the four-year-olds are very different, um, but they really have a lot to say about who these three are as people. So one of them is, for example, a Spanish speaker who um, his parents are very educated and there's a bookcase by his bed and he gets to pick two books that uh, they'll read to him at night. And he picks the two and he loves dinosaurs. And we talk about how he always picks picks these books with dinosaurs and how his parents read to him. And you can see uh, in the book, how we describe his finger follows along with them. And they ask him questions about the dinosaur that are kind of open-ended. And so you can see him forming these, the sense of literacy yes. when he's four, before he even comes to school and how, you know, when he comes to school and we ask him open-ended questions, how he's already been, you know, kind of enculturated into that through these interactions. And so, you know, that's a, a powerful example of how, development is really a part of this social and interactional process that we all experience. Um, So that would be one of the examples that we use in the book. And we show two other children that have very distinct experiences from him, no less powerful, but very distinct. I think I wrote down the words, um, how we see people is how we interact with them. And so your book is just saying, how do we, how reminding teachers, how we see kids really impacts the way we instruct them, the way do we design lessons. Right? If we believe that they're not college bound, we're gonna design lessons that are not gonna re- prepare them for that. Right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and you know, we open the book with an interaction between a teacher and a student. And in the opening of the book, and I, I would have to look at it, but it's a math problem and the student went home to do this math problem. And in the math, in the word problem itself is the uh, phrase, uh, juice concentrate. And so uh, the math problem is, you know, how many, how much juice will this can make? And so the student comes back to school and she doesn't understand the word juice concentrate. Right. 
And, you know, a teacher could, and we, we say, well, you know, we show them the interaction and we show that she speaks vernacular English uh, that's indigenous of who, who her identity is. Um, and instead of the teacher, we, we, and, you know, we've used this example in professional development a lot. And many teachers will say, well, that child doesn't speak regular English or standard English, or there must be something wrong with this child. When in reality, what the teacher has is cued into is when the child says, what is juice concentrate? You know, what is that? And when the teacher explains the multiple meanings of the word concentrate, that it's used, you know, to help our brains think. And it's also a noun that's used for taking the water out of juice and making a can of this, you know, thick, uh, uh, what's the opposite of diluted, but, you know, this reduced um, uh, juice. Um, the student is just so excited in this and she, she says something like uh that's crazy you know like wow that's is that possible so you can see the teacher's excitement and her student going aha i get it and so then she asks her another math problem and she can easily do it because the teacher's taken time to figure out well what is the student having you know wh what is it what's that rich vocabulary that that student needs to really be able to do this and unlike many teachers that might gloss over this or might have perceptions of that student. Right. This teacher really takes the time to figure out, okay, what do I need to do to really help this student succeed? And within a very few minutes, the student is already on her way with this math, um, you know, uh, this sort of math knowledge that she uses and is, and is excited about. Right. In your example, it really shows that, okay, so the kid didn't have the word juice concentrate yet the teacher recognized the student's intelligence and said, I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to help you bring your intelligence out and I'm going to add that word to it. So it's not saying, oh my goodness, you're coming from a family that doesn't speak this way or doesn't have this. It's saying, oh, you're really smart. Let me uh, show you an example. Let me make sure you understand this word so that you can be part of the lesson. Yeah, so when the student actually says to the teacher, what be concentrate, right. she knows that she's asking a very targeted she gets she gets what she, she gets doesn't it. get she and she's really thinking as a learner so it's like this rich question that the teacher doesn't have any sort of um negative view of the student which is great and it all comes back to uh, what i said but how we see kids is how we're going to instruct them right and so your that help that example was really helpful can you talk about then i guess we we should really talk about the partnerships with families then. What does that look like? Or should we talk about the balanced approach of culturally responsive teaching? Because I could see going both ways. Which, well, um, we I think, well, yeah, we can talk about both of them. Um, and the pandemic is a good way to explain, you know, kind of both, uh, you know, what we mean by a balanced um, approach and why that's so darn important. And we don't often think about that as like, what does it mean to, Kind of think about ourselves as the image that we use in the book is walking on a tightrope. Yes. And how you have to stay balanced in order to stay on it, right? And for a lot of us who teach and um, you know work with, have the pleasure of working and the privilege of working with students, we're always trying to balance ourselves of figuring out well, what do I need to teach? What is it that students need to learn, and how do I really create that? And um, you know, by continuously adjusting myself. So I stay on this 
balancing act of, you know, how do I stay up and balanced and how do I help my students do the same thing? And, you know, part of it is, you know, obviously during the pandemic, uh, prior to the pandemic, we had a ton of face-to-face interactions throughout the school day. And we could tell by our students' body language, we could see by what they were producing. Um, We could, you know, have individual conversations with them. We could work in small groups, all uh, work as a whole class, all, you know, in our moment-to-moment interactions. And suddenly we all leave the powerful place that we're so comfortable in to be in this screen world of virtual. Well, how do we stay balanced and how do we still have those powerful interactions and so forth. So part of this notion of a balanced approach is how do we continuously adapt and be flexible and really be very focused on how do we help students succeed no matter what our changing circumstances are, our students changing circumstances are, society's changing circumstances. And, um, you know, the curriculum changes, just all the things that impact what we do, how do we stay balanced and help our students stay balanced so that we can continuously really help support their learning. I think that's an opportunity for social emotional learning right there because we're really showing kids like, hey, we're really new to this world of virtual learning. You're really new too. So let's figure out this out together. How can we do it together? And I think I'm gonna build on your analogy of the tightrope and I always tell teachers uh, to be a bridge and I say, uh, what do what does the class require? What does the lesson require? And then what do students need? And then we as teachers bridge that that gap for kids. And so that's the balance that I see. Yeah, and part of it is the questions that we ask of our students. So how we can really learn about them and really learn about what their interests are, what their hopes and dreams are, um, a teacher they really liked and what they really liked about what that teacher did, um, what their favorite place to go to is, you know, what activities they enjoy doing outside of school, all of that information and all of these questions. And when I've worked with districts, well, I'll start off with 10 questions, you know, that we can build from. And then by the end of the day, if I, you know, work for them with the, for a few hours or whatever, that list becomes really long and it becomes our our guiding question list for a whole semester or school year around how can these questions really help inform us to, you know, gain information from our students in a positive way that's really going to help us work from their strengths and interests and have it be connected to the curriculum. And an example that, you know, I often use is um, a teacher in, uh, you know, it could, it, it, a student moves to a community from from New Jersey and he's taking the train to New York City a whole lot. And when the teacher asks him, you know, what's your favorite place to visit? And he describes, you know, going to New York City on a train and his parents have taken him to the Puerto Rican Day Parade and he's gone to the top of the Empire State Building and he's watched, you know, some other events um, and he's had all these experiences. And then that same teacher who's a high school math teacher when she does a unit of study on distance, rate, and time, she can use that favorite place of his, taking the train to New York. And he's got depth of scholarship around, you know, how long the t- train takes, how much, 
uh, distance it's traveled and so forth. Um, so he does very, very well in the math class because he's got this depth of experience. So these questions that we, you know, we talk about this in the book too, around, you know, asking questions, being curious and being interested in getting to know our students can really help us create that balance around who they are as people and what we're teaching, sort of help make those wonderful connections between, you know, the content and um, who our kids are and what their experiences have been. And that goes back to the idea that um, we build on students' background knowledge. And when we build on students' background knowledge, we have to see that they have valuable, they have background knowledge that is valuable to build on, to uh, connect with. And so that's, again, connected to how we see kids and how we, the narration, the, the narrative that we have around kids really informs our instruction. So the teacher said, oh, yes, I want to learn about you. I want to understand where you come from. Oh, that you uh, love traveling on the train. Let me incorporate that into my instruction. It's not saying, oh, you don't have experience. Let me pour experience into you. You say, what experiences do you have and how does that connect? I think Morzano said one of the best teaching strategies that we can give kids is uh, like analogy. Like this is similar to this because you already have an understanding of what this is. Now let's connect it to something else that's new. And so that is the example of what you just talked about, building on students' background knowledge. Yeah, and you know, I think our expression of interest shows our passion for you know, helping that student do well and you know, using that as a point of reference, like what uh, Gay and Ladson Billings talk about is, it's these references that we make where we're helping students really see these rich connections that they're not, they don't have an absence of, they have these wonderful ways to connect these, you know, the, the, the subject matter that we're teaching and we're helping to build that. So that's, you know, that becomes part of our, our kind of um, curiosity ourselves to get to know our students well. Right. It reminds me of like Reggie Rapman where she said like, we don't start with the curriculum, we start with the kid. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember years ago listening to Nancy Cloud, who's you know very well known and uh, is at uh, made a lot of contributions around English learners with disabilities. And um, one of the one of the questions that she would ask students is, "What's your favorite place to visit?" And just the results were so powerful because they were like the least place you'd expect. And uh, she she gave uh, this is a project that she did where she, at the time. Um, this is a while back, most of the kids didn't have smartphones or cameras, so she bought disposable cameras and they took pictures of their favorite place. And she said, just go to your favorite place, take a photo. And she had them developed and what kids took photos of were so surprising, but it was so helpful to kind of get that context of, well, this is their favorite place. Oh, the laundromat. Oh, the corner store. Oh, the park where their family, you know, walks to, it was just, it, it gave that teacher such a window into their students' lives that she could then build, you know, a whole uh, unit of study with, right? And that, that is just so richly helpful. Right. It's, it's not starting from zero. 
Yeah. And, you know, so oftentimes when we say who our favorite teacher was, what we'll be describing is someone who really took a genuine interest in us. Right. It was really curious about us and helped us see something. Right. So, that, you know, that's like such a critical part of this. Right. It's another way of saying it is this. You remember the teachers who see you for who you are. Uh, yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Let's move to talking about the family part, like family partnerships in culturally responsive teaching. Yeah, that's such an important thing. And um, I might have mentioned Ivania lives on the West Coast and I'm on the East Coast. And, you know, we sort of uh, had this wonderful experience where she teaches at Whittier College and had done a lot of work there, has done a lot of work there. And she's also worked for the, among many places, LA Public Schools and the California Association of Bilingual Education. She has really a wonderful background situated in the West Coast. And I was uh, on the faculty at U University of Massachusetts at Amherst and had done work there. And, you know, we kind of brought these ideas uh, together around partnering with families. And I'd done work with the uh, Parent Information Resource Center in my state and with the Federation for Children with Special Needs. And um, I brought that sense of understanding, but Ivania had done this work and had, uh, been involved in this research. And it was this project at uh, the California Association of Bilingual Education where they they have this project called Project to Inspire. And it, mm. you, you can Google it, it's project, the number two, Inspire. And it was uh, implemented in a lot of different districts. And it was really around empowering families as leaders. Mm. And it was around this program of what would it take to co-power with families to be co-powered uh, partners. And it's just a wonderful way of really describing what we should really be striving for, right? So, um, you know, schools we know can be a whole lot more successful when we partner with families. Right. But the research that was done um, at Project to Inspire really speaks to how important family involvement is. Because where they, um, we, we highlight this research that was done. And what we show is where families had this rich background in how to be co-powered and co-partner, uh, where multilingual families had these experiences that were provided by their schools and where the schools had these experiences, where the school community had this training on how to work with families. When both of them were trained how to support each other to move away from a hierarchical school yes. knows all yes. to we all can work together and be right. co-partnered together. The outcomes of the students were so much better than uh, students whose families weren't involved. And we write about this and we talk about how, when, you know, how is it possible to work closely with families yes. and what kinds of things should we be looking for to really empower parents as leaders in their own, in their school, especially multicultural, multilingual families, how to help, you know, support families in being more involved and what kinds of activities can we do to do that. And we show a number of activities that Project to Inspire did, and we lay out courses that they offered, both for the staff and for the families, and just how powerful that was. I think one of your frameworks is to go back to the background, the student's background. And where do students have their background? It comes from their families, right? And we don't just say, oh, like the narrative is that the old narrative was that, oh, parents are of migrant or immigrant or refugee families. 
they it might be a, it might be a deficit narrative. But when we change that narrative and we say, well, look at all the rich experiences that they're bringing, right? For example, like I'm right now in the summer with my nieces and we're talking about the fruit that we're eating. We're talking about why we're eating it. Then we go to the grocery store. We're getting different kinds of fruit. We're coming back and we're blending all the fruits together to make a smoothie. And like this is the experience that maybe when my nieces go to school, and then they'll go to PE class, they'll talk about nutrition, they'll talk about food, and they'll talk about the community. And it's all this, all the interactions that parents are providing with their kids are giving them the background that teachers can build on. And when we partner with families, like you're saying, that's when we can bring in the background and make content more connected to students' lives. Yeah, you bring up some wonderful points. And in the book, we highlight uh, Wolf Street School in Maryland and what they did um, to really create these co-powered partnerships with the community as well, uh, with families and with the community and all together, you know, among these three groups, the school, the community, and uh, the families. And we talk about this, uh, you know, this really horrible uh, experience that this young child in Maryland had. And his, I think his name was Diamante Driver and he came to school not in um, Baltimore where Wolf Street is, but in a neighboring community where he came to school with an abscessed tooth. And he, you know, he perished from that abscessed tooth, that, uh, which was terrible. And um, at the time, Maryland didn't have a system to provide all students with dental care. So that horrible outcome where it would have been like a simple extraction of the tooth would have saved his life. Um, it, it led to Maryland... Uh, requiring, you know, that uh, children have dental care, but at Wolf Street, um, because they know the importance of working with families, um, they wanted to find a partner that would be as responsive as they strive to be. And, you know, they found a partner in the University of Maryland. And, um, you know, the ideal behind that was to find a partner that would really help them, but also be really willing to get to know the kids and their families from an asset-based way. And so within a very short period of time, along with addressing the, there were many students with dental issues, along with addressing their needs, they've really evolved into having students as mentors and family nutrition uh, people that help other families with nutrition and having the community uh, donate, especially you know during this crisis, donate, uh, you know, healthy foods and stuff like that. So they've really evolved to much more than just students with dental problems, but what does it take to like what you're describing with your nieces to really think about what, you know, well, how, how do we really help care for our kids and their families so that they can do well in school and in, and in everything and be involved. Yeah, I remember that story when you came to talk about your book, Beyond Crisis, and you shared how, yes, there are ways that schools can partner with the community. They have to be open and they just have to look. And, and then you gave wonderful examples of that. Let's talk about another piece, which is how do we move from culturally responsive teaching to culturally responsive schools? Well, a lot of it is what I just uh, talked about is really as a school, how do we become a place where anybody coming in really sees that sense of um, cultural sustainability, uh, where all everyone is supported in, in many powerful ways to really create 
uh, where the school itself builds on its assets and everyone's assets, where um, a- actually where it's a chatty school, there's a lot of interactions. <laughs> it's not a quiet place, Fun. but where uh, there's a lot of back and forth interactions between uh, the school community, family community, really everyone. So if you walk in a, a, a principal, let's say going around or a coach going around or a mentor of some sort, would really expect to see a lot of interactions in the classrooms and in the hallways and in the cafe, you know, just everywhere that there'd be a sense of rich interest in one another. Um, and that, you know, we'd always be striving for that balanced approach. And as um, let's say productive tensions happen, uh, experiences occur that we're supporting one another and really trying to stay um of not afloat, but really excel at what we do because we're taking into account all of these uh, various um, elements and activities that we need to take into account. And then how do we co-power everyone? So, you know, really be looking at, well, what does it take to really help everyone feel empowered? And, um, you know, it really showcases that, you know, that sense of assets of students and families that, uh, that you know, the school itself is really taking time to build on families and students' assets. Um, that, you know, there, there's a sense of the more we talk, the more we communicate, the better we're going to be, right? So there's always room for more partnerships, right. more um, ways of, you know, working together and, and, and being together in this process. And then, uh, you know, how can we keep building on our partnerships so that they're never stagnant, that we're always lo- looking to grow together. So that's one, you know, there, those are four ways that, you know, we kind of look at how do we really create these co-powered schools? Right. It's not just, uh, I guess, thinking about the math example of the teacher, now, what if we did that math example, if all teachers were using that approach of saying, okay, kids, what is your background? I want to build yeah. on it. And it's not just math, right? And then when I was thinking about that, it, it reminds me of Hattie's work where he talked about collective teacher efficacy, where everyone believes that students can achieve and their uh, actions do shift and in, in, impact student learning and raise their achievement. And then I'm going to change the T in collective teacher efficacy to collective community efficacy. And really what you're talking about is saying, let's bring the community together where we all believe in kids and their families. And because of that collective belief, there's partnership and there's uh, student achievement. Yeah. And I, I, you know, a big part of it, because we're on the topic of culturally responsive schools for specifically multilingual learners, you know, culturally and linguistically diverse learners, it it has to be that um, we see a, a child in a family's language as being an astounding way to promote learning. Um, and I use the word astounding because it, probably the most known in, in, you know, the field of research are Virginia Collier and, and Wayne Thomas. And they looked at, you know, communities that had dual language programs and you know, what the outcomes were, and they use the word astoundingly effective, oh. you know, that, and those are such, that's such a powerful phrase around the importance of that K-12 commitment, or that beyond that commitment around a student's, you know, home uh, culture, home language, um, 
And that, you know, when schools really look to ways that we can really amplify that experience, students do so much better, not surprisingly, because they can draw from that rich asset that they have, their language asset. Um, and, you know, they found that it really didn't matter what the socioeconomic, the racial, all of the, you know, all of the elements, what what really was so important that it was, it didn't matter whether students were from rich or poor experiences when their language uh, assets were highlighted and amplified, they did better. So that's, you know, that's one thing. And then another is, you know, where we create conditions really all the time where students feel healthy, safe, supported, you know, those are just so, and competent, you know, and I guess confident as well, but, you know, that we're always striving or working toward that ideal, that that would be what a school would look like is how do we really help shape our schools to always be thinking about how is this helping our students to feel, or this new group of students and families. um, And, you know, how do we honor and value our students and their families' rich identities in the interactions that we have and how we reference them, all of that wonderful stuff. And then if there's an imba- a power imbalance, you know, something that we notice that either, so, you know, s- s- in society or our schools ourselves, if there's the, you know, we're always, we want to help that balanced approach happen so that as things happen and as changes occur, we're ready for them, that we don't, we're not so surprised that we say, okay, here, here's what we can do. This is our vision. We're really working toward and striving toward helping students feel safe, a sense of value, acknowledgement that they belong here and their families do, and they can make rich contributions. That when all of that happens and we create that balance, it leads to a really rich experience for kids and their families. And it becomes honestly their home away from home, that you know, that rich school. Right. So um, you know, we show an example of. And that through the book, we show examples of what do we mean if there's an imbalance? And one of the examples that we use is this student whose mom was ill and he's at a high school and the high school has this tardy policy that if you're tardy three times, you you really get, it's very bad. Uh, You know, uh, you're going to get more than just a demerit. You're going to lose points. It's going to work toward you against your grade and so on and so forth. So this child is, you know, not just helping his mom get well, but he's bringing his younger siblings to school and their school starts later than his. So he's late every day to first period class. And the teacher, you know, really wants to know why is the student late? Uh, He's not thinking I have to punish him, but you know, what's causing this. And so he says to him, I, I, you know, I really miss seeing you at the beginning of class. Can you tell me a little bit about what's happening? And the student feels trusted enough to tell him what is occurring. And it propels that teacher to meet with the school uh, leaders and others to really talk about their tardiness policy and to kind of reshape it so that that power imbalance of this this child who really is doing his best, but has these outside influences that prevent him from coming to school on time, but are very important for him to do it. It really helps them rethink their policies. And so we write about, well, you know, if there's these kinds of things that come up, we really should be taking time to think through what could we do about this and how can we help 
support that child to do well in school and not be as punitive as we've been. Right. I, I, when you were talking, I was thinking about Sir Ken Robinson's quote, and he said, the gardener cannot make a plant grow. The gardener can only create conditions for growth. And I think policies create conditions or stifle conditions for growth. And you really, you really just talked to a lot of principals out there to say, let's reflect on the policies that we're creating for kids. Are we creating the conditions for growth? Yeah, and that's part of, you know, being a responsive school community is really looking at um, when we create these policies and these practices that sort of reflect what we know at the federal, the state, the district, and so, you know, how does that, you know, once we put that in play, and we implement it, and we, you know, with all good intent, when we implement it, is it, does it always work? And when it doesn't work, what do we need to do about it so that we can be more successful with the very students that we need to be successful with and historically haven't been as successful with. Let's end the podcast with this last question, the second to last question. Uh, I found this very unique in your book. You talked about service learning and responsive instruction. Yes, we did. (laughs) Um, It's a concept that I really love as does Ivanya and a lot of us who really know you know, authentic learning experiences are so powerful. Right. And they've been around for a long time. The concept of having a student contribute to uh, their community uh, to really take civic responsibility in a whole wide variety of ways is not something new. Um, in fact, and I'm trying to remember, I think it was President Bush and Clinton who enacted the National Service Learning Act that schools could apply for federal funds for it. So there was a lot of, you know, high level interest in knowing how important it is to take it to help students have a civic responsibility to provide a service for their community. But what has happened over the years is as schools have had budget reductions, where have service learning opportunities been reduced? In poor schools. So schools that are in wealthier communities have continued with service learning opportunities, but not in poor communities. And we shouldn't be doing that if if it's such a powerful way to help students see, feel, experience learning. We should be doing all we can to create these opportunities. And we highlight some really wonderful districts that have service learning opportunities. And we also highlight Whittier College because service learning is really a part of the college. And so what has happened when students have been exposed to these experiences is this high level of academic growth, both at the school level, K-12, and at the college level. So uh, what we write about is, you know, what happens when students get to investigate an issue? You know, they identify an issue and they investigate it and they implement a plan to address it. And then they celebrate their successes in addressing it. So, uh, for example, at Whittier College, the local high school uh, environment, one of their environmental science classes, kids grew a garden. And uh, the college level students who were taking a course in urban education and in environmental education were uh, assigned to work with a group of multilingual learners as well as AP students and sort of see how they were contributing to these garden, um, this 
environmental awareness through this garden building project. And what this college students had to write about working with these students is so powerful. And then we, you know, we also highlight uh, Framingham High School in uh, Massachusetts, a very diverse high school with a number of bilingual programs. And during student senior year, uh, multilingual learners can contribute and be tutors in the community, in the elementary, the middle and the high schools and uh, medical place in, in places that offer medical services. So these seniors have these rich internship experiences where they're providing a very important service to newcomers and help them understand and, and so on and so forth. So uh, in the, you know, one of the chapters of the book, we show how every one of us, no matter whether our schools are rich or poor uh, or struggling with funds, we can really provide these wonderfully important opportunities for students to give and contribute and study as they're doing that, the subject matter that, you know, is more of a project-based experience and just how powerful it is. So it's such an important um approach to successful, uh, you know, programming that is successful. Right. I think I read in Reggie, Reggie Rupman's book, Literacy Essential, she said that uh, what's good for some is good for all. Absolutely. Right. And yeah. so the fact that service, we know service learning is authentic learning experiences for kids. Let's keep it for our multilingual learners. And I think I love the way that you end the book with that chapter because it takes all the principles beforehand and, and saying, this is how we turn the principles into practice. Right. Yeah, it, you know, it, it goes back to when I, you know, many, many years ago, I was working in a high school. And at that high school, there were a group of um, wonderful students who had had very limited prior schooling. And they really viewed themselves um, and I knew them and they viewed themselves as they just didn't have what it takes to be successful. And I remember asking them if they would tutor other kids and they initially said, I don't have anything to, you know, and I, oh yeah, please. And I was, you know, really saying, not only do you have the goods, but it would be so good. And this would be such a wonderful experience for us. We need you. And, you know, way back, and this was years ago, once they started tutoring, and I had them do it first period, <laughs> because I figured if they did it first period, they'd come to school on time, which was great. It was such a powerful experience. And it really spoke, speaks to the power of making a contribution that, you know, as humans, we really want to be caring and care for and about others. And so that rich experience of being able to do it and all of us have capacity to, you know, provide this. It's just wonderful. And we should be doing more of it. Right, right. What works for others can work for Absolutely, others. yeah. Well, that brings us to our close. I, let me ask you this question. I only reserve this question, this closing question, for the most prolific uh, guests that I have on. So people who have been in the fields for decades and who have written and contributed so much. So you're definitely qualified for this question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Made a well, drum roll. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Oprah has something called uh, "What I w What I Know to Be True." Right. After your years of just giving to the field, what do you now know that is true that you wish you knew when you first started on this path of advocacy? Wow. What I wish I had known. Um, oh, there's a number of things I wish I had known. 
I wish I had known how important it was to really value every student. Wouldn't that be great? Um, I wish I had known that having a deficit-based view was so, I I think I found my path toward having an asset-based view because I had had a deficit-based view. (laughs) And, uh, you know, how unsuccessful that was. And, you know, I, um, I think, you know, one of the most powerful experiences that I had as a young educator, and what I wish I had known about the strengths of students is, I don't know if I told you this, one of the first students I worked with, her mom died. Did I tell you the story about her mom died? And I got a call. I was just young. I was probably in my mid-20s at, the, at that point. And I got a call from her dad. And he said, you know, my wife died. Can you bring Mary to the hospital? I think I might have told you yes, that story. Yes, you did, yes. And, and, you know, I was, I still am so, I shouldn't be so surprised that people have assets because seeing her um, in this really powerful state of having just lost her mother and then bring her to the hospital where she, I witnessed her thanking the doctors and the nurses for the care they'd given her family. Why was I so surprised at that? You know, when I think of, if I only knew then that, you know, we all have these strengths and assets if we would just spend more time identifying them and less time on either perceiving or worrying about um, our our deficit-based perceptions, we'd be so much more successful, you know? Well, I as I kept thinking about this podcast and listening to you, I'm like, wow, she's such a good storyteller. And I think that is our job. We are changing the stories that people hear about multilinguals, you're helping us say a different story. And I know that you said initially, you said in the podcast, someone said outstandingly influential. Oh, sorry, outstandingly effective. Yeah. Right, outstandingly effective. And I wrote when you said that, I was like, you are outstandingly influential and inspiring. Oh, thank you. Well, you are as well. I think you bring that out in people you interview and you know I um I, I think also you know when I think about what's made the most powerful influences on me it's having conversations like this where you can't help but think about you know people that you've been really positively influenced by and um, because I had the real privilege of working with uh, refugee populations who'd really experienced so much in their lives that uh, were so powerful, and uh, one of them who I I really treasure as a you know professionally and personally um, went through the you know went through the schools in my community, and his parents never came to school. They basically brought him to school, and you know they didn't even come to his graduation. And you know he talks about and he thinks about you know what would it take for families to feel like this is their home too, you know, and so that's you know. I, I think that's had an astounding effect on my thinking of how do we make school a place for all of us and your podcast a place where all of us will really hear what each other has to say and learn from one another. And I think, you know, when I was younger, I thought there was an end to learning, right? I thought what, when I'm done with school, when I'm done getting my doctorate, when I'm done, right? And what I think I've learned now is I don't want to be done. I still want to learn. And there's uh, such power in, you know, continuing. Well, I think every single conversation is is like a seed. 
uh, in the implanted in the heart. And I see this as a conversation where you've planted a force. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now, on to our recap. Dr. Debbie Zakarian shared principles of culturally responsive instruction. They are start with knowing and then referencing to students' backgrounds, collaborating with them and their families, their community, and other colleagues so that we can all be culturally responsive. Finally, launching all of our actions from a place of recognizing and incorporating students' assets. I wish we had more time to talk more and explore more culturally responsive teaching through service learning, as I can see how service learning embodies all of Dr. Zakarian's framework. We'll just have to have her back again. In the next episode, I'll share my five favorite co-planning strategies. These strategies have drastically changed my practice and magnified my influence during co-planning. These strategies have lifted me from an aide in class to an equal designer of instruction. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.